next is probably um, Advent. I, I want to focus every week up into Christmas, every Tuesday night on, the, on anticipating Christ. We're going to go through Advent scriptures and work our way up to Christmas because I think Christmas is, is we've skinned it down to one day <laughs> with a bunch of shopping. It's like commercial, 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 and then one day. Well, that's the secular way to do Christmas. I'm not condemning the shopping and the trees and Santa Claus. Great, great, great. But we're Christian, and the sacred Christmas calendar is way bigger than Christmas morning. It's anticipate, 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 anticipate. Well, we're going to do some of that. So every Tuesday leading in through December, the end of November, up to Christmas will be uh, a new little series on anticipating Christ. All right. Okay, let's go. This is our eighth stud, our eighth lesson from the study in the book of Ruth. And I want to say to those who are watching, um, th- thanks for your patience. We've been out for several weeks with travel. Um, I've tried to put some things up in our on our website slot for Wednesdays, uh, two of the last three, we've put something new up so that there would be something there. Um, however, we have broke away from Ruth. This is the final of Ruth. So for those sort of following in real time, um, that, that apology applies. For those who are watching this years later, months later, whatever, it's, you just clicked play from seven to eight. You don't realize you skipped three weeks. Uh, we did. Um, and so I don't know if that changes the flow of the way we teach. I don't really think so, but... Um, it might change the immediacy in this room of being really intimate with what's going on in the book of Ruth. So here's the two minute cliff notes version. Uh, the, the little letter to Ruth is more than a romance story. It's more than a love letter. It's more than the story of Boaz falling in love with this Moabitess girl. I think the book of Ruth is most powerfully understood perhaps as a little piece of subversive literature, almost a protest piece against what is happening in the fifth century BC when Israel comes out of Babylonian captivity and they come back into Israel. They begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they begin to lay the foundations that will become the new temple. And they go back into Torah to try and reinstitute a sense of moral code in the returning Israelites, sort of like a revival. And revivals are often built around moral codes of one stripe or the other. Usually, most of the revivals I've ever been a part of, and I know the American revival system is not like the 5th century Jewish revival, but there's probably not a lot of differences in that revivals were built around some sort of moral standard being relifted. We've got to raise the standard. In fact, I went to so many raise the standard revivals growing up. Um, and raise the standard meant you guys are getting lazy in your morals We've got to pick it up. And so the revival was rallied around some sort of moral stance. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah do. They build a, a, a rally around this idea that if we're going to come back as the people of God, we're going to have to come back as the people of God. And we've got to get rid of all these people that are not the people of God. And Torah very clearly tells us that these Moabites don't belong in the land. And so if you've brought your Moabitess women back with you and you've had kids with those women, you need to get them out of your life. And the book of Ezra closes with 107 deportations of Moabitess women and their children being sent out of the land of Israel and back into the land of Moab. Right around that time, someone sits down with pen and writes the little letter of Ruth. And the letter that they write, I think, is intended to be a shot across the bow to say, don't be so sure that you have the moral high ground. Don't be so sure that you're supposed to kick the Moabites out. 
because maybe God has something in our own heritage that tells us he has a different plan. And so the book of Ruth leans into history and it sets itself right there at the time of the judges. Even though I don't think it's written in the time of the judges, it's set in the time of the judges and it sets itself up as the genealogical story of King David. How did we get to a David? David is the apex military. He's the alpha male on, the, is, on Israel's historical calendar uh, on their timeline. It's David. And so the author of Ruth goes, I want to show you how we got to David. And so he injects the story of a Moabitess girl, a girl who by definition should not belong with the people of God. She's Moabitess. That's that, that's that letter. That's what it's trying to do. The seven lessons up until now has been to take us all the way to the moment where Boaz redeems Ruth as the kinsman redeemer, the Jesus character of the book of Ruth, the one who buys her as his own bride and then will have a child with her and that child will be the full inheritor of her husband, her, her, her dead husband's family name, family inheritance. This is the way kinsman redemption worked, what, what is also called the Leverett marriage in which if a woman loses her spouse, but she hasn't had children, in order for her to be taken care of financially, uh, a member of her spouse's family is to have a child with her. That child would be technically, legally, the child of her deceased spouse and would receive everything that the spouse owned. So then it doesn't just give an inheritance, it takes care of her financially. In a culture where women did not have an upward ladder socially to success, and so God provides for the widow and, the, and the, the stranger and he provides for the outsider throughout Torah by causing the children of Israel to take care of them. And so Boaz goes to the nearest kinsman, a man who is technically closer in the bloodline to Ruth, and he offers the chance to redeem Ruth and the man wants to redeem her as long as all he has to do is get the property. He wants the property and the possessions and the inheritance. But when he finds out he has to marry Ruth, he doesn't want her anymore. Because and in, in my favorite interpretation of this story, he's the type of the law, the nearest kinsman to us, who wants what it can get from us, but doesn't want to wed us, doesn't want to marry us, doesn't want to associate too closely with us. And once he doesn't marry, Boaz decides to. And when Boaz then marries Ruth, the story goes really fast. Like the whole thing's been building up to this moment. And then you get right to the end of Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth, they have a kid, and then it's right out the door. The story is over with, which is obviously to show us that the whole point of the story was to get you to this moment where you realize that Ruth's okay. She was a Moabitess. They're not okay. She must be okay because Boaz married her and had a child with her. And if that's the takeaway the, the ancient audience would have gotten, then maybe it's the takeaway that we get as well. And it's, my subtitle is tonight is because of the offspring. That's what I want to focus on, those offspring. By using a story meant to emphasize the offspring of Boaz and Ruth, I think the author shows that Israel had a history a history of greatness that sprang from questionable roots. If, if Ruth is the centerpiece of this story and David comes out of Ruth and this whole culture is mad at everyone that looks like Ruth, well, maybe God isn't as angry at the Moabite or doesn't want them shunned to the level that we do. So let's pick up the reading in the final chapter, Ruth chapter 4, 
There's 22 verses in the chapter. We're right in the middle. We're going to start in verse 11 and go a couple verses in. I'm going to break this down into a few verses at a time tonight. My ultimate goal, just to tell you up front, my ultimate goal is to land with genealogy. I want to land on this begat, begat, begat. The, the parts of the Bible that when I was a kid reading the Bible, I hated. So-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. I mean, who gets excited about that? It took me a long time to realize why that was a necessary part of the Scripture. We'll try to cover that tonight. Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. There's, there's my title, because of the offspring. Because this little speech given by the elders that sat at the gate mentions the offspring, that which is going to come out of this. This is the author of Ruth's way of focusing the reader in on the thing that matters the most. What we've been building to this entire story is the offspring. I want to show you that great things came out of people that are rejected. And if that's God's way, then maybe God, who doesn't change, would still do that. That He would still bring great things out of that which was rejected. When we talk about being at the gate... We talk about the elders. We're talking about something very specific in Hebrew lingo. The gate and the elders speaks of leadership because at the city gate, the elders of the local community would congregate in order to discuss scripture, in order to discuss legal matters. And whatever was going to happen legally for the town would happen at the gate. You'll remember Sodom and Gomorrah um, that... In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have uh, Lot, who has apparently ascended the judicial ladder. Because when the story opens, he's sitting at the gate in the city. And he's governing over Sodom. And so that's why he's a man of such great authority. Because he's a man who's been placed at, at sort of leadership in the city. So, so when you see gates and elders, then you're talking about leadership. And you're speaking of a people who have the ability to bless or to curse. Because whatever comes out of their mouth is how you got to live your life. And so the story culminates at the gate. And if this story is being written as some sort of protest piece against the Ezra's and the Nehemiah's of the world who are trying to ostracize Moabites, then they've written the story right into the lap of Ezra and Nehemiah, essentially going, here's, your mo here's you, you're the elder, you're the ones who have the authority to get this right or to mess this up. And so we're, we're, be we're begging you to rethink your Moabite policy. Because here's a story of, of a group that had the chance to rethink it. And so the author, I think, is showing the elders pronouncing a blessing on the union of an Israelite with a Moabitess, which prompts us to use Paul's lingo. Because Paul tells the Romans, be a people that bless and curse not. You have the power to bless. You have the power to curse. So make a choice. And you make this every day. You, you, you make this choice to, to, to bless people with your mouth or to curse people with your mouth because you can. We're not sitting in literal gates and we're not literal elders, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the ones who've been breathed upon by Jesus. He breathes on his disciples in the Gospel of John. And he says, whoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. And that's a power that he gives us in the Holy Spirit. Not, not that we can wash people's sins away, but, but we have the ability to release people 
by our mouths, by speaking life into them. And we have the ability to help put them under condemnation because we're judgmental and we're harsh and we're cold. And you, you live in a world where everybody's got their two cents and they've never had a better platform to put their useless two cents out than, they have, than we have now. Like digital, the digital world has given us all the ability to say whatever we think, which is, has we've, this short social experiment has shown us is not as great as it sounds like. You know, because there was at least a time when if you wanted to uh, argue, you had to sit down and write a letter. And sitting down and writing a letter meant you probably had to think about what you were going to say. And thinking about what you were going to say was hard work. And then once you put in all that work, you kind of went, eh, it ain't worth it. And you didn't say anything at all. Well, now when you can just go, oh, yeah. It's like I'm 10 seconds away from fury and saying something I might regret. And probably the people of God more right this moment than ever before in the history of the world need to take serious the injunction of Paul to bless and curse not because you've never had it so easy to curse. You've never had it so easy to just let people know what you think at your basest moment, in your worst moment, the moment when you didn't put any thought into it at all. It's just reactionary. And, and maybe more than ever, we need to be a patient people and a slow down people. My God, if there's ever a time in the history of the world that the people of God need the people of God, where they ever need a space to slow down, where there's no noise, where it's sanctuary, where it's sacred, not secular, it's now. I mean, you could have made an argument a few hundred years ago that your day-to-day -day life was about as quiet as sanctuary would have been. So, you know, it was much the same, but not anymore. Have we ever needed a space? where everything else gets pushed out. In other words, have we ever needed a space where we go to the gates, you know, where we, where we take a second and think over our response and we are measured in it. Um, let's be a people who bless and curse not. But I, I think the elders at the gates are pronouncing the blessing as a way the author showing that we have this opportunity to get this right. Um, I don't, know if I, I don't know if this is the right way to say this, but it, it might be, um, here's our moment, history. Uh, you know, history is smiling at us. This is our chance. Uh, and, and, we, and we have this opportunity to get this right with the Moabites in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, the way that they did with Ruth, let's not blow it. And I, and I know we're not dealing with Moabites, Moabites, but we're dealing with the other. We're dealing with that which is, outside and that's important so then this the story turns here to verse 13 and then we're really downhill to 22 because the genealogy is going to follow this but this is an important paragraph as far as i'm concerned boaz took ruth she became his wife and when he went into her the lord gave her conception and she bore a son so there's a big speed up we're just running right towards because the object is to get us to the offspring we want to see where this goes so we got to fast forward but look at this on the way to the fast forward. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. Oh, it will be. Maybe, maybe not just his name, but his children are going to be. And may he be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne you. Verse 15 is a great prophecy. I hope you realize that out of this genealogy comes David. Who else follows David if you go far enough? We get to Jesus. 
And so you're looking at a, a Ruth 4.15 prophecy of what Jesus will be. Je- because in effect, Jesus is restorer of life and nourisher in your old age. It is Jesus who becomes that life giver. And he calls himself as much in his earthly ministry. Um, this is similar, not exactly, but it's similar to a New Testament moment. Notice how excited everybody is for Naomi. Well, they're excited for a lot of reasons. I mean, this is their friend. This is their sister. This is their family member. Um, Naomi, now that Ruth is there on the scene and has a child, that child, kinsman redemption, means that Naomi now is taken care of because there's a son. And the son gets everything that was her husband's and was her boy's. And since he gets it, she's okay. And so everyone is excited for her. And it reminded me of a scripture from the New Testament. I've been doing my podcast in Luke. So the early chapters of Luke have been sort of popping at me lately. And this one jumped back out at me this week. Luke 1, 57, 58. Remember Elizabeth. Elizabeth is John the Baptist's mom. Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. And she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and her relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Well, for some reason today, when I was preparing Ruth 4, and I saw these people get all excited about Naomi having a kid. And it's not even Naomi's kid. It's Naomi's kid's kid. It's Naomi's dead kid's kid. It's pretty removed. But they're pumped. They're excited for her. And it got me thinking about Elizabeth because I just worked on John the Baptist and Jesus. And so I, I recalled Elizabeth's friends being so excited. And that got me to thinking about some things. Birth is the end of barrenness. I mean, at the end of the day, what birth is, is you've went from not being able to birth a child to, to birthing a child. And so you've made the jump from there is nothing to there is something. And so birth should always be celebrated. But let's... Let's always celebrate the day of new beginnings. Even though when you move into a day of new beginnings, something always has to be left behind. Because you can't ever step into something new without leaving something old. There's always a piece that gets left at every turn in the road. I I know I'm being super simplistic, but if you turn left, you lost the world of turning right. Okay, I know you don't feel like you lost it because you never actually had it. But you did lose it. Like, you can't go both ways. So when you go this way, everything that would have been this way doesn't exist. Maybe in some cosmic parallel universe, there's a you going right. Great. But you're not living in that cosmic parallel universe. That guy is. And in his universe, he didn't go left. (laughs) And so every move of your life takes you into an arena that causes you to leave something else behind. Every decision you've made that brought you to this room tonight, and you've made, you've made billions of them in your lives, but, the, but here you are, and you left something else to be here. Um, that should be celebrated. The church honors its past, particularly where it links us to Jesus, but it's so important to look forward to always yearn for the new day. To not be so locked into what you had that you can't let go of what you had to embrace what you could have. And I don't want to be a person who's always looking back going, boy, it used to be this way and we did it this way. It was so good and we did it this way. But I want to honor the moments that need honored. You know, tradition is not a bad thing. You have, you're going into the holidays. Next week's Thanksgiving. What were we? Four weeks from Christmas. And you're going to do traditions. And you do them because they make you feel good. And they remind you of being a kid. Or they bring your family together. And those aren't bad. 
until they choke the life out of what you could do. And so if you hold on to the tradition so badly that you can't do anything new, then all you do is live in what you were, not what you could be. And our faith is a people that reach back through things like the Eucharist and, and prayer and the scriptures. And we go all the way back to the table of the Lord. But we can't only reach behind. We, we have, we're always a people stepping forward, always a people moving into a new space and celebrate that in each other. Celebrate that in people. Um, because it's, it's too easy to just want to go behind, to just want to always live there instead of living in the future. Um, that was sort of my, kind of my last transition thought before we head into genealogy, because genealogy is where we're going. I mean, it's, it's where this whole book's been leading to. And it's, it's, it's I was going to say ironic. It's not ironic, but it's, it's not coincidental. It's designed by the Spirit, I think, for something very important that will bridge us into the New Testament. So let's read it. Ruth 4, 16, all the way through. Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there's a son born to Naomi. Notice in this culture, it's not a son born to Ruth. It's a son born to Naomi because the lever at marriage, this is Naomi's inheritance. And they called his name Obed. He's the father of... Now we're out of quote marks here, by the way. Those, those are done at the end of Naomi. So now the narrator's coming back in so that his audience doesn't forget. They called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Next. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram, Abinadab, Abinadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon. Salmon, Boaz. There's our character from this whole book. Boaz, Obed, and Boaz gets injected into the story. Obed, Jesse, Jesse, begets David. And Ruth's over with. That's it. There's no like big goodbye, no big explosion, like wasn't this a great story? And this is by design. Our author led you all the way to David. The whole point of this story was to say, oh, you don't think Moabites belong? You think God hates Moabites? Let me tell you a story. You know where your great King David come from? And then there's this whole story to lead you all the way up to, and Jesse begot David. And it's almost like a mic drop moment for the writer of the book that just kind of drops the mic and goes, chew on that for a little while, those of you that hate Moabites. How do we end up with a David if we don't get a Moabite? And not only that, but we got to throw in all these other names as well because connected to these names are some shady people. But the book of Ruth doesn't need more shadiness. It's already got Ruth. And then comes the New Testament. And you, you and I walked through John. It took us years. Um, John doesn't have genealogy. John just goes, in the beginning was Word. Word's with God. And word was God. Let's recreate the Bible. Boom. New man on the earth. John's... I love John. He's... He's a resurrected Jesus, thrown into the world. Here's what it would look like if we truly believe Jesus was alive. And, but Matthew's not doing that. Matthew's writing to Israel, straight up. He's not writing to a post-apocalyptic Israel. He's writing to a pre-apocalyptic Israel. Meaning, he's writing to Israel before the temple comes down. 
He's writing to an Israel to say, your world's about to come to an end. This is why Matthew's your great eschatology gospel. It's why Matthew talks more about the end of the world, end of the age, than any of your other gospel writers because Matthew has an audience. It's called Israel, and he's warning them. He's going, your whole system you're banking this thing on is going down, and you're missing your chance to grab the one thing that can make for peace. But to do that, he has to be very specific in his approach. And so I want you to notice, right out of Ruth 4, look at all these guys, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abedadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Obed, Jesse, Jesse, David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Very beginning of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers, Judah. Perez, Ruth chapter 4, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, Hezron, Hezron, Ram, Ram, Abinadab, ought to sound familiar, Abinadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon, Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, Obed by Ruth, Obed, Jesse, Jesse, David the king, David the king, Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And in the first six verses of the New Testament, the New Bible, Matthew gets as, as controversial as he can possibly get. He can't, he, he can't be more brazen than what he has just done. Matthew literally does the unthinkable. <laughs> he includes women in his genealogy. It's unthinkable because for inheritance purposes, they're irrelevant. They don't get an inheritance. So why name them? That's why women are not in genealogies, by the way, in the Old Testament. It's not because God doesn't like women. It's because the culture didn't have, women didn't inherit. So you're only going to list who inherits. That's the whole point of the listing. Who gets the property? This guy. Well, who gets it next? This guy. Who gets it after that? This guy. So we don't put the women in the genealogy. They don't matter for the reasons the genealogy matters. So Matthew, by putting them in there, does the unthinkable, but to include them is to make it thinkable. To include them is to make them relevant. To include them is to change the whole reason for putting it in there. So the, the moment he puts women into the genealogy, you know he's not putting it in there as who gets to inherit. Because if you're just going to put who gets to inherit, you don't put women. So what would be the other purpose of putting these women into the genealogy? Like, why bother? First of all, Brian, go back so that we can see the genealogy one more time in Matthew. First of all, Matthew wants to bring you out of the gate to let you know this is all about Jesus, the anointed. Yeshua Christos, the anointed Savior of Israel. This is the Messiah, and this is what his genealogy looks like. And then he throws in two characters that are not begat characters. Son of David, son of Abraham, colon, Starts over at Abraham, takes you all the way to David. So what's he doing? He's son of David, son of Abraham, then Abraham to David. Son of David, son of Abraham puts Jesus in direct link with the two most important covenantal people in Israel. And essentially, Matthew puts Jesus as how God keeps his covenant promise to Abraham and how God keeps his covenant promise to David. Because God told Abraham, I will multiply you, I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. So Matthew opens with, Jesus is the son of Abraham. 
Okay, so how's the whole earth get blessed? Jesus. God tells David, I'll always have one of your seed on the throne. The throne will always be yours. How does God fulfill that? Matthew opens with Jesus Christ, the son of David. By making him a son of Abraham, he gets all the Abrahamic promises. By making him son of David, he gets all the king promises. All right, start over. By making him son of Abraham, he is Israel. By making him son of David, he's the king of Israel. I think most Christians need to camp out Matthew chapter 1 for a little while. Because <laughs> if you're still looking for God to fulfill his promises in national Israel, bring a temple, set up a new throne, start a new kingdom through somebody else, 2,000 years too late. Matthew thought so. I mean, Matthew wants to open the whole New Testament with, hey, whatever you were waiting on, I found him. Here it is. Genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. Stop looking for anybody else. No one else is going to fulfill what God gave to Abraham. So I'm always amazed when, when we as Christians look at anything else and assume that God is lifting up, raising up a nation, raising up a person, raising up a people. Who are we following? if not the one we are convinced is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Don't give me your political treatise that God is raising up so-and-so to lead the free world. You're 2,000 years too late. He's already raised up his man, Jesus. And he gave him his own kingdom. <laughs> and all the kingdoms of the earth bow to his kingdom. And there's no one that God is raising up that is not Jesus. That don't mean God doesn't bless you. God doesn't use you, speak through you, touch you. But He's not raising you up. He's not raising up America. He's not raising up Israel. He's not raising up a politician. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is it. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. And just to show you that for God, it's no longer about individual inheritances. I'll throw a bunch of women in. Because by throwing a bunch of women in, this isn't about individual inheritances. Oh, and by the way, Look at the shady ladies I'm going to throw into this story. Because I want to show you something very important. Go back to that next one. To include them is to make them relevant. So I asked you a question. Who does Matthew include? Because there's a bunch of really godly women in the Old Testament. Like, I mean, he, if he just wants to throw out some names. You know, he could give us Sarah. It means princess. Be a great one. Rebecca, Rachel. But no. Let's, 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 go all, let's go all subversive on them. Let's take our cue from a 450-year-old letter, Matthew has to say as he's writing this. It's been about 500 years old at that time. Let's take our cue from a 500-year-old letter. The letter of Ruth. A story of an outsider who doesn't belong in the grace of God, according to everyone. And yet out of her, God raises up David. I got a better one for you. I can get you all the way to Jesus and I'll do the same thing. And let me show you some of the ladies in Matthew's genealogy. Tamar. He calls her out. He puts her in. Tamar is a neglected widow who poses as a prostitute sleeps with her dead husband's father because they are refusing to give her her leveret kinsman. 
And in a world where she has no legal rights or money, she's going to starve to death. But God has made a provision that she's supposed to receive the inheritance and marry the next son. But her father-in-law refuses. And when he finally does give her the next son, he doesn't want her either. And when the third son is old enough, the father-in-law doesn't want anything to do with her. So she goes to a town he knows, she knows that he likes to frequent. And she obviously knows he likes to visit prostitutes. So she dresses up as one. Lo and behold, he comes in and sleeps with her. And nine months later, forgive the language, but this is exactly how this lays out in Genesis. Nine months later, he finds out that his whore daughter-in-law is pregnant and she's not married. And he's ticked. He is fired up and ready for her to die. So when he comes to find out who she's been sleeping with, she hands him the only thing the man had to give her because the man that she slept with didn't have sufficient payment. He didn't just find him a prostitute. He was a cheapskate. But he left some of his jewelry and trinkets with her. And when she brings them out, well, lo and behold, they're his. And he falls under conviction. And it's a story that if, if, if you ever need a story in the Bible that you're pretty sure wouldn't be there if not for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, bingo. Because that one falls right in the middle of Genesis out of chronological order. It's just in there. Almost like someone wedged it in years later into the middle of Genesis to go, hmm, let's figure out who this Tamar cat is in Matthew chapter 1. And that's who she is. Matthew thought you needed to know her name because it's important to God that everyone receive their kinsman redemption. So you're not going to run over Tamar. She's in. And then he names Rahab. This one is not posing as a prostitute. Rahab is a straight up Gentile prostitute living in a brothel on the wall in Jericho at the gate. You stay near the gate because that's where all the guys come through. And she runs a house of prostitution and takes in two spies from the people of God, shows them charity, saves their life, hides them from Jericho. And her payment in return, she says, is when you knock the city walls down, which I know you will because I've heard about your God, spare my life. And they say, if you'll hang this scarlet ribbon out the window, we'll save your house first. She does. They do. She goes back into the camp. And she marries a guy and has a baby. And she names him Boaz. So you can see how our little book of Ruth is way more important than a little sneaky romance in the Old Testament. It's one of the more important pieces of history. She treats the stranger with respect. And man, that moves the heart of God. Because it's what God told his people to do. Rahab is a powerful story because she does what God's people struggle to do. See, God's people love to judge the prostitute. This is like low-hanging fruit for most people in, the mor in moral code, just you know, looking at someone sexually promiscuous. Well, that's, just, that's easy. That, that's, that's the terrible thing. And I am in no way promoting sexual promiscuity or prostitution. But it's really easy to cut down the prostitute. But the flip of that story, the part that's supposed to shock the reader, is that the person that knew how to treat the stranger the best, that did what God tried to get his own people to do frequently over and over and over again, did it easily. 
Did it almost as a course of nature? Did it, did it as part of who she was and was rewarded for it because it was all God was ever looking for? It's what God came down to Sodom and Gomorrah looking for. I've heard how they treat people. I'll go see for myself. And when he shows up, they don't treat him very well at all. And it's what the author of Hebrews says, is be careful that you don't entertain angels unawares. Because your whole life is hospitality. Your whole life is how you treat the stranger. This whole journey is because they're all God's kids. Like you don't get to judge them because you don't like the Moabites behind their name. Or you don't like the color of their skin. Or you don't like where they were raised. Or you don't like their past. Or you don't like their present. So you don't get to treat them differently because you don't really know them. You don't really know who they belong to. And then there's Ruth. Her name gets put into the genealogy. She's a Moabitess. And I just did this on my, I just thought, well, maybe that's the worst thing you can be. I mean, Moabitess was as bad as it got. I mean, they were the sworn enemies of the people of God. To throw Ruth into the genealogy is to get as bad as you can be. And then there's Bathsheba. Now, Matthew doesn't actually refer to her by name, but he does something maybe just as hard. He refers to her by inference. Matthew says, she who was the wife of Uriah. That was Matthew's way of reminding everybody she used to be somebody else's wife. And then David slept with her. And so it's an inference to her previous marriage showing that she was wronged, showing that she was stolen. This is really controversial in biblical scholar world. Dare we assume Bathsheba was raped? I don't know. I know that if the king decided he wanted somebody, he got them. There wasn't a lot of questions that had to be asked. Now, what do you want to call that? You call that. Matthew didn't say it, but he did say she had been someone else's wife. It was Matthew's way of saying she wasn't the wife of the someone in this genealogy. But she had been someone else's wife. This is a spectacular list of ladies. Matthew's doing something on purpose. Matthew is showing us how God keeps his promise and how nothing slows him down and how he has a broad net that brings in incredibly. There's also some cool stuff. I mean, go home and read the rest of the genealogy. It's three sets of 14. There's 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. Those were important numbers in the Hebrews. As a matter of fact, in, in Bethlehem, at the Church of the Nativity, if you go into the Church of the Nativity to the spot where Jesus was supposed to have been born, how do we know? Well, that's, they've been honoring it for, you know, 1,500 years, so we'll go with it. There's a 14-pointed silver star in the floor, right? beneath. That 14 points is because of the 14 generations in Matthew chapter 1, genealogy. Six... Sets of seven lead you up to the end of that third 14. Seven was an important number for Hebrew people. It was numbers of completion. What Matthew does is he puts Jesus as the beginning of a new seven. So there are six sets of seven, and then he lands you on Jesus so that Jesus starts a whole new world. It's Matthew setting up Jesus as the federal head of a brand new kingdom, as the father of a brand new people, what Paul would call the first fruits of those who would resurrect, those who would come after him. So I land here. Ruth stands as a letter to all who assume that God has a favorite people. Even if he did, we probably would fail to recognize them. 
I just, I, I put that in there because um, I just, the older I get, the more I realize that I'm not as smart as I thought I was. You know, that's probably a pretty good thing. It's sad it took me this long to figure that out. Um, and I realize more and more that I, I probably can't spot what I think I can spot. You know, like if I thought I had it figured out morally, um, I'd probably still be wrong. So it's a good thing that we're not in the judging business, that it's not up to us. So even if God did have one, and I think the book of Ruth stands, I think Matthew's genealogy stands as a way of going, look, you're not going to be able to pick the right people. And even if you thought you could, you'd pick the wrong ones because you wouldn't have put her, 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 her in there, would you? And you know you wouldn't have because you, know, you wouldn't do that. You've never put a woman in a genealogy before. She so picked the four worst ones you can think of. It's Matthew going, see, you're just not as good at this as you thought you were. That Jesus comes along and changes the way the world is looked at to change who gets to be included. Matthew is the New Testament stamp of approval on the inclusion of the wronged. Out of this comes Jesus. He who will famously die numbered with the transgressors was actually numbered with them in his birth. That struck me as I read this. As I, as I wrote that today, I thought, I have preached forever that Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, and I always put it at his death. Because he is. Remember, when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and they take two swords, two swords in a group in Rome was a revolution, so he's, there's transgressors. He, he dies between two criminals, one on the left hand, one on the right. He's numbered with the transgressors. I've always preached when Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, he dies. But the truth is, Matthew tries to open the New Testament by numbering with the transgressors. He puts Jesus into it at the very beginning. He goes, out of this fallen, broken Adam comes Jesus. Um, here's a fun fact for you. When you read Luke's genealogy, it goes the other way. And it goes backward from Jesus to Adam, which is because Luke isn't writing to Israel. Luke is writing to the world. And so if you're going to write to the world, you've got to take them all the way back to Adam. If you're going to write to Israel, you start at Abraham, because that's Israel's story. Uh, Mark skips it all together, because Mark's just a fanatic. Like, he's just a freak. He just wants Jesus go, 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 go. And John's got something else up his sleeve altogether. He's actually numbered with the transgressors in his birth. I, I want to, I, 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 I land here, I stop here with the thought that Ruth, Ruth's writer, whoever he or she may be, really wants to take us through this whole gamut of emotion, of pain and heartache and loss and excitement and redemption. But I think the landing spot is shock. I think that's the point. I think it's to land on David. It's to say, if, if God would not disqualify David and he had a Moabitess great-grandmother, am I doing the math right? David, Jesse, Obed. Yeah, four generations. The Torah which is what Ezra and Nehemiah are working off of, tells Israel that a Moabite's not allowed in the temple for 10 generations. 10 generations. The author of Ruth brings it all the way down to four and goes, David was only four generations removed from a Moabite. And God called him the apple of his eye. So are you sure you're right? 
about who gets excluded. That's all I would ask. That's all I ask you. That's all I ask you. Are you sure you're right about who gets excluded? And is it important for you to be right about who's excluded? Shouldn't this be the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David? And whoever gets included in that list, bonus. But I don't get to determine who's included in that list. I'm just going to start with Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, the inheritor of the world, all of it in Christ. So I think by putting us at the end with David being the last word, the writer is saying, you make your own decision, but don't ever again say that you know who belongs in and who belongs out. Maybe you need to rethink your policy. And I'm not here to tell you who's saved and who's lost. I'm not here to justify how people live their lives and go, doesn't matter what people do, they're saved. Or doesn't matter what people do, they got to do this or they're not saved. I, I don't have that power. And it's not a mantle I want to wear. But I do believe that Jesus Christ is God's fulfillment of every promise He ever made in the Word. It's His promise to Abraham. It's His promise to David. It's His promise to the whole world. And all of the promises of God are in Christ, and they are yes and they are amen to the glory of His name. And my responsibility is to amen what Jesus has said yes to. And if Jesus says yes to people I don't agree with, I might have to choke, but I need to learn how to say amen to it. I don't know who gets in. But I know I don't get to determine that. <laughs> and I know if Ruth teaches me anything and Matthew 1 teaches me anything is that I'm probably still not smart enough to know who gets in, but I probably shouldn't make any guesses. Should probably just go with Jesus. And I don't know what that means for you, but I think that we would be a better church if we realize that at the end of the day, we don't determine any of this. We just love people. And I told our group this, this Sunday, and, and this has stayed with me for two days now. Um, you are not called to change the world. You are not being asked to change the world. Who do you think you are? I mean, we, it's not our job. But you are being called to live out the change that's already happened in the world in Christ. And if we could just shift the church from rah, rah, let's change our city, which you can't do. And because you can't do it, you start to impose your will on the city. And you think that you got to change it by getting elected and change it with laws and change it with money and change it with power because you can't change it because it isn't your job to change it because you're trying to change a kingdom that's being swallowed up by the kingdom of Christ. But if we could shift from we got to change it to we need to live out the part of the world that's already been changed in Christ. That's what the kingdom is. This is a part of the world that's already been changed. Let's just go live that out. If we live that out, then we're letting the kingdom of Christ do the work instead of us forcibly doing the work. And it's a slow journey, but it's been, an up, it's been a journey that's been happening for 2,000 years. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a woman. That's shocking right there. What if we stopped right there? That's Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman. Dot, dot, dot. Kingdom of heaven is like a woman who, who buries yeast into three measures of meal. The, the word there is really closer. She plants it. Like she, she, she hides it 
inside the measures meal. And then she waits until the whole loaf rises. Well, the kingdom of heaven is, that's, that's what Christ inaugurated when he died and he rose from the dead. And what he has done is he hid, he hid the kingdom into the earth at his death. And when he came out in the resurrection, he came out as the first fruits of the kingdom. First thing produced in the kingdom. This is magnificent. The first thing produced in the kingdom is in its fullest form. Jesus steps out of the grave. This is what the kingdom looks like. And then disappears. You go, oh man, we had it right there. That was the kingdom. He goes, okay, now, when you're baptized into me, you're baptized into that. Go live that out. That's the changed part of the world. That's the part that's already in the meal. It's just expanding. And it's slow. And it, it's, it works its way out. And all we do is live out of that and allow that to become our expression. Okay. That last five minutes had less to do with Ruth and more to do with the kingdom, but I maybe needed to be said. Let's pray. Let's let the word settle in us. Hopefully, someone watching, you let the word settle in you. God, you are good. Once again, you have shocked and amazed me in this journey with all of these little beautiful glimpses of Jesus that keep popping their head up in these little stories. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for this story and how this genealogy of Ruth leads us to a more expansive, explosive, and controversial genealogy in Matthew. And it's the way you start your whole New Testament is by showing off those no one would show off. Father, I am not entirely sure what that means, uh, but I do know that if I would have wrote the list, it would look differently. And so... Thank you that I don't get to write the list, but also help us to know your heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.